one only needs to be a casual observer of what's going on in our country to know that the United States is on the brink. As one op-ed writer penned it recently, the U.S. is on the brink like no other time in our history since the Civil War. Now, I don't know if it's that bad or not, but I do know that it's bad. You don't have to look very far to know that we are divided as a nation. There are issues that are causing disunity among us so much so that the divisions and the disunity and the resulting uh, name-calling and arguing and finger-pointing, both on the national level and more down to the local community level, and even among some friendships and in some families and even in some churches, it has reached a boiling point. It has reached a point where it, it seems as if everybody, and I mean everybody, is angry about something, and they feel very justified in their anger. You sense it, don't you? You, you feel it when you move throughout the community. In every conversation, every conversation regarding any topic related to particularly our response to COVID in these days, there's a lot of opinion. And there's a lot of anger. Churches are having to sue for the right to meet. By the way, you recognize that we are allowed to gather today as a church in North Carolina only because the courts weighed in and gave relief to churches to be able to meet. Otherwise, we would not be able to. Same thing is happening in California and across the country right now. Churches are having to sue the right to pursue their First Amendment rights. We're arguing now about how we should or can cast our votes in November. Will it be mail-in voting universally or will the polls be open? We're angry about masks or no masks. Just this past week, my daughter and I were at an establishment outside, outside, six feet away at least from the next person in line, minding our own business without a mask, outside, and were accosted for endangering the lives of those around us. We're angry about should we go back to school or should we not go back to school? Should students return and should teachers return? Do we open the economy more fully or close it back down again? Is hydroxychloroquine a good drug or a dangerous drug? On and on and on it goes. Everybody is mad. And you can see it in the feeds that stream through our social media every single day. Everybody is an expert. You hear it night after night in the riots that in some cases we've seen with our own eyes in our own streets here in our community, but certainly across the nation we see it on the news every single night. Protests filling the streets, federal courthouses being set ablaze, 
windows, businesses being uh, looted and destroyed and set on fire, angry about everything. The Black Lives Matter movement, the All Lives Matter movement, the Defund the Police movement. It is the age in which we're living. And everybody that you know has strong opinions about these issues, and almost no one hesitates for a moment to share those opinions, oftentimes with colorful language, making the point. I think you'd agree with me that it's in times like these that we need a word from the Lord. Amen? Well, we need a word from the Lord in all times. But surely in times like these, we don't need just another talking head, another conservative opinion balanced by another more progressive or liberal opinion. What we need is an answer to the questions that we're asking, which comes from the pages of God's Word. By the way, did you know that over 400 times in the Bible, the Word of God declares, thus saith the Lord, and this is what we need. What does the Lord have to say about it? And so, we're going to seek it. Over the next three Sundays, by God's grace, we are going to seek God's wisdom, God's answer for the issues, the questions that really have divided us for decades, but seem to be dividing us more fully now than they ever have before. Over these next three weeks, I'm going to talk to you from God's Word about three things. And I want to tell you now that I'm going to share with you in these three weeks the Word of God, not the opinion of Pastor Jim. I learned years ago in ministry, when you teach on difficult subjects, just hide behind the Bible. That's what I'll be doing, just so you know. We're going to talk about three things. The polarizing political environment that we're living in. We're going to talk about it. We're going to talk about the difficult condition or difficult uh, uh, situation we're in with race relations. And we're going to talk about the issue of pro-choice versus pro-life. And today we're going to begin with that sensitive subject of abortion. I want to talk to you today about the very sensitive issue of abortion. Now, before I say one more word, let me begin by acknowledging what I know is true. And that is that I know that I am speaking to many women and men for whom abortion, an abortion, maybe more than one, is a part of your story. Now, I know this not because I particularly know your stories individually. I know it because the statistics bear it out. Nearly one in four women in the United States will have an abortion by the age of 45. That is an astounding statistic. Nearly 25% of the women in this country will at some point in their lifetimes have an abortion. That means that for every one of those abortions endured by that, that woman, there is a man involved 
who in most cases has been aware and in many cases has encouraged, perhaps paid for, those abortion services. For some of you, it is a known chapter in your life. It's part of your testimony. You've shared it, and God has used it and used his grace in your life and your courage to tell the story to help other people. For some of you, it is a deep and a very private secret that almost no one, perhaps no one, knows about. But I want you to hear me. God knows you by name. And he knows everything about us. And he loves you deeply. And he has answers for you. He has a word for you. And so I want you to hear his word for you today. And then beyond the personal issues related to abortion, which are very personal and very deep, there is the larger discussion of uh, the activist pro-choice movement and then the pro-life counter-movement. And so the question is, where should we stand? We are Christian men and women. We, we are the church of Jesus Christ. We're men and women of the book. And so where should we stand on the issue of abortion? We should stand on the Lord's side, amen? And he is clearly without question, he is on the side of life. And so this is where every believer should stand. You have your Bibles open to Jeremiah chapter number one. Follow along as I read beginning in verse number four. Jeremiah chapter one, verse four. Then the word of the Lord came unto me saying, before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee. Before thou camest out or camest forth out of the womb, I sanctified thee and ordained thee a prophet unto the nations. And then I said, Jeremiah speaks, O oh Lord God, behold, I cannot speak, for I am but a child. He's told by God in verse 5, I've ordained you to be a prophet. And his immediate response is, I can't do that. I'm just a kid. And we don't know exactly how old Jeremiah was at this time. Obviously, uh, a young man, perhaps a teenager. Oh, Lord God, I cannot speak for I'm a child. But the Lord said unto me, do not say I am a child. For thou shalt go to all that I shall send thee. And whatever I command thee, thou shalt speak. Be not afraid of their faces, for I am with thee to deliver thee, says the Lord. Then he put forth his hand and touched my mouth, and the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words into thy mouth. See, I have this day set thee over the nations and over the kingdoms to root out and to pull down and to destroy and to throw down and to build and to plant. Now, if you're a note taker, you've got a pen in your hand, I want you to go back to verse number five, and I want you to circle four 
declarations that God makes to Jeremiah. Four things that God says to him. Circle all four of them in verse number five. Circle, I formed, I formed, I knew, I sanctified, and I ordained. Those four things. I formed, I knew, I sanctified, and I ordained. We'll come back to those in a minute. I want you to remember these three numbers when you go home today. Write them down somewhere. 600,000, 1,600, and 60. Three different numbers. 600,000, 1,600, 60. According to the CDC, there are more than 600,000 abortions that take place in the United States every year. That translates to 1,600 abortions every day, which breaks down further to be more than 60 abortions which occur every hour across our land. That means that while we are gathered in church today, there will likely be more than 100 abortions, 60 at a minimum, that will be performed across America today. 600,000, 1,660. 57 million is another number that you probably ought to remember. That's the number of abortions that have been performed approximately, it's estimated, since the Supreme Court of the United States ruled in that landmark case Roe v. Wade in 1973. 57 million abortions performed in clinics and in doctor's offices and in hospitals since 1973. It's 57 million procedures. And so the question is, what were those procedures accomplishing? Were they, in fact extinguishing a human life or were they simply removing tissue? No different than having your appendix removed. What was being accomplished? In his book, The Case for Life, Scott Klusendorf reminds us that the primary question, really the only question in the abortion debate is simply this, what is the unborn? That really is the question, isn't it? What is the unborn? Klusendorf concludes that if the unborn are tiny members of the human family, then every possible justification for abortion rights evaporates. Now, if the unborn are something different, if they're not tiny humans... Then, then there's another discussion. But if the unborn are simply tiny members of the human family, then Klusendorf says every, every argument evaporates. So what is the unborn? Well, science is clearly on the side of life, I'm convinced, but let's be honest, I'm no scientist so let's see what the Bible says. What does God say the unborn are? Write this down. 
The book of Jeremiah tells us, he says that your being, God says your being is not determined by your birthday. Your being is not determined by your birthday. When do you begin to be? That's the question. When does a human being begin to be? When does life begin? This has been one of the primary questions in the abortion debate over the years. When does human life begin? And over the years, there have been a number of different answers. In colonial America, uh, in the 17th century, 18th century, um, life was be, uh, believed to begin at quickening. And quickening simply is described as when the mother can feel the baby's movement. When there's a flutter or perhaps a kick, that's the moment of quickening. And a couple of hundred years ago, that was believed that's when life began. Well, certainly we know better than that today. Others have said life begins at the point of viability. So it's a life when it can survive outside of the womb of the mother. Around 24 to 26 weeks. That's when life begins, some people say. Some people say that life doesn't begin until the first breath. That is, that prior to delivery, it is not a human life. That child only becomes a part of the human family when it draws its first breath after delivery. Now, by the way, you should know that that belief has led to atrocities like partial birth abortion. Some have believed and Thankfully, many states, or at least a number of states recently, have moved uh, to enact legislation called heartbeat laws where they believe that life begins at the heartbeat. When the, when the fetal heartbeat is detected, that is the mark of life. And that happens somewhere around four to six weeks gestation. And then there is uh, another belief, it is my belief, and I know shared by uh, uh, so many of you, is that life begins at conception. Life begins when fertilization takes place. Stephen Schwartz uh, has said in the moral question of abortion, he writes, philosophically, there is morally no significant difference between the embryo you once were and the adult you are today. I love that. Morally, there's no difference between the embryo that you once were, and all of us were embryos, the embryo you once were and the adult that you are today. And he uses an acronym to make this point so, so clearly, I felt like I had to share it with you. He uses the acronym SLED. And, and the purpose of the SLED acronym is to illustrate that the unborn are not, are not unlike the born. Those within the womb are not unlike those outside of the womb. The S in SLED stands for size. And his point is, well, sure, the unborn are a smaller size than the rest of us, but we're all different sizes. And all God's people said amen, right? We're all, we're all different sizes. And so size doesn't determine humanity. The L in the acronym is level of development. He makes the point that the level of your development cannot be the measure of personhood because a four-year-old is not as developed as a 14-year-old. 
And so we're all in the process of developing all through our lives. So he says you can't say, well, until the fetus develops or the embryo develops unto a certain point, then it develops into personhood. No, the level of development doesn't determine. E is for environment, environment. Your personhood can't be determined by your environment. Just because you're in the environment of the womb doesn't make you any less a person than if you're in some other environment after you have been born. And then the D uh, represents degree of dependency. Some will say, well, it's not a human being because it can't survive without its mother. It's dependent upon its mother for survival. Well, there are many people who are dependent upon insulin to survive, right? There are many, that child will be dependent on its mother after it's born. When it's a week old, a day old, six months old, it cannot survive on its own. So your personhood, uh, he says, cannot be determined by your size, your level of development, your environment, or your degree of dependency. So what then determines personhood? Well, the simple answer is God determines personhood and This passage in Jeremiah is the biblical basis for the personhood of the unborn. Verse number five, I asked you to circle, I formed you, I knew you, I sanctified you, and I ordained you. And let me just give you a pop quiz. When did God say to Jeremiah, I knew you, I formed you, I ordained you, I sanctified you? When did God say those things of him? You see it in verse number five, before you came forth from the womb, that is the definition of the unborn. Before the birth occurred, God said, I knew you, I formed you, I sanctified you, and I ordained you. First of all, notice God said, I formed you. The word formed is a word which literally means to conceive in the mind and then produce with the hands. It's an artistic word. It's the word for a potter forming a piece of pottery. When the potter takes the piece of clay, puts it on the wheel, and begins to turn it, as long as it is simply a piece of clay, no person in the world has any idea what will eventually develop out of that clay, what will uh, be made from that lump of clay, except the potter. And the potter knows. Before it exists, the potter knows. Because in the heart of the potter, in the mind of the potter, he knows, is it going to be a bowl? Is it going to be a pitcher? Is it going to be a platter? What is it going to be? When God says, before you came forth from the womb, I knew what your life would be. I knew you, I conceived you in my mind, and I formed you. It's exactly what the psalmist said in Psalm 139. Many of you know it and are already thinking of it. So let me just read it to you. You don't have to turn. Psalm 139, verse number 13. For The psalmist says, For thou hast formed my uh, inner parts. You have possessed my range. You have covered me or knitted me together in my mother's womb. I will praise thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are thy works, and that my soul knows right well. My unformed substance was not hid from thee when I was made in secret and curiously wrought together in the lowest parts of the earth, that is, in my mother's womb. Thine eyes did see my substance yet being unformed or imperfect, and in your book were all my members written, 
which in continuance were being fashioned when as yet there was none of them. So the psalmist says, God, you, you are the one who made me within my mother's womb, literally using the idea, the illustration of, of a knitter's needle knitting together that tiny little body in the womb. He says, you knew them before they were, they were uh, c- created. You knew my members before they were made. You knew my days before they developed. And God, you put me together. Isaiah 44 and verse 24 says the same thing. God says, I am the maker. I have made you. What does God say about the unborn? He says, before you were born, I formed you. Secondly, he says, before you were born, I loved you. I loved you. This is what he means in Jeremiah chapter 1 when he says, I knew you. The word know, when he says I knew you, it really means, that doesn't just mean I knew about you, like, oh yeah, I knew you were going to be born. It means I knew you. I understood you. I, I, I value you. It's really what the word means. I, I, I valued you. I care for you. You know, the Bible, the Bible tells us repeatedly that God loves us without merit. It means we cannot earn his love. And so this means that he loved me before I was formed in the womb, before I came forth from the womb, he already, he already knew and loved and cared about me. Now, you would agree that as an embryo, we can do nothing to please God, right? We, as an embryo, there's nothing we can do to merit the love of God. And yet, Scripture says that even at that point in our lives, he loved us. I knew you. I loved you. Job 10 and verse 11 and 12 says, You clothed me with skin and with flesh. You knit me together with bones and with sinews. You have granted me life and steadfast love, and your care has preserved my spirit. I mentioned a moment ago that this idea of God forming us is this this visual idea of, of a potter beginning to form something out of a piece of clay And God is our creator, and he has sculpted our lives together. And here's the beauty of it. We're all different, right? We're all made differently. We're all wired a little bit differently, but all by the creative hand of Almighty God. And here's the beauty. No matter if you're tall or short or or big-boned or small-framed or or brown hair and and blue eyes or brown eyes and blonde hair. I don't know. Does that go together? Whatever. However, However you're made, you know what you're made in? The image of your heavenly father. We're all made in the image of God. And because we've been created in the image of God, we have been given by that, by the fact of our creation, we have been given intrinsic value. We do not earn our value. Our value is inborn because we have been made by God. And it means that every single life is precious. Not just the strong and the capable and the surviving, but the weakest and most vulnerable among us. God says, I I formed you, I made you, I knew you. The third thing that God said to Jeremiah is that I planned your life. I planned your life. I've sanctified you. It means I've set you apart for divine use for divine glory, and I have ordained you or called you to a specific 
purpose. Here's the thing. He says that before you came forth from the womb, I, I knew you and I formed you and I planned your life. You've heard this said that God has a wonderful plan for your life. And he does. He does have a wonderful plan for your life. And that plan is spelled out in his word. Through Christ, we can have this life that he wants us to live. He says, I've planned your life. Now, any, any of us with any life experience at all know that life's not always easy, is it? Even the life planned by God is not always easy. Abortion proponents oftentimes say that a child should be aborted rather than being born into a life of difficult circumstances. We wouldn't want to bring a child into the world that's going to have uh, to live in poverty or a child that uh, might have some physical or uh, uh, developmental challenges. Or we, we wouldn't want to bring a child into, life, uh, into this life where they'll have hardships, will we? Well, that's not what God says because God looked at Jeremiah and said, I've planned your life. And when you read the book of Jeremiah, here's what you discover. God didn't plan a life full of roses for him. The life that God planned with him was marked with hardship and difficulty. Do you know what the, the surname, sort of the, the uh, nickname for Jeremiah is? The weeping prophet. The weeping prophet. Now, not just because he never had a convert. That would cause any prophet to weep. But his life was abused. It was difficult. Chapter 1, verse number 19, God says they're going to fight against you. You're going to have a hard time. Chapter 18, and verse number uh, 18, he, he talks about how that people will devise uh, devices or plotting against Jeremiah. They will uh, smite him with their tongues. They will slander him. Chapter 20, verse number 2, tells us that one of the priests, Pasher, uh, punched Jeremiah, beat him, and put him in stocks next to the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. I'm just simply saying he was rejected, he was mocked, he was beaten, his life purpose seemed unfulfilled, he was thrown in, in prison and put in the stocks unjustly, his life was hard. In fact, if you read chapter 20 verses 14 to 18, you'll find that there were some days when Jeremiah wished that he had been aborted. He wished that he had been stillborn. In fact, he says in chapter number 20 and verse 17, I wish that my mother had been my grave. And yet, God planned this difficult life for him. But God makes us a promise in the difficulties. And the, and the promise is that he is with us, right? You're still in Jeremiah chapter 1. Look at verse number 19. He says they are going to come against you. They will fight against you. But they're not going to prevail because I am with you. Here's this promise. I will keep you through the hardships. I will keep you. Life will be difficult, even the life I've planned for you, but I will keep you. And he says, he will use us. Chapter 1 and verse number 5, he says, I've ordained you a prophet. Jeremiah says, I can't do that. Verse 7, God says, don't you say you can't do that. I've ordained you. I'm going to use you for my glory. So here's what we know. We know that God creates life in the womb. And we know that God's answer to abortion 
because he creates life and he values every life and every life is made in the image of God from conception, then we know that God's answer to abortion is no. Therefore, the answer of every single Bible believer, every single Christian on the issue of life should be unequivocal. The answer to abortion is no. We do not support abortion. We do not. doesn't mean that every situation is simple and easy. I know that they're not. And sometimes they're incredibly difficult. But no matter the difficulty of the situation, we stand with our Heavenly Father for life. Now, let me say just a word quickly to those who I'm talking to today who, for whom abortion is part of your story. Staying in the book of Jeremiah, I want you to turn over to chapter number 18 for just a closing moment. I want you to hear God's word for you. Several times already I've mentioned to you that God uses this illustration of a potter And in chapter 18, he's going to take Jeremiah to the potter's house and give him a visual illustration of his grace. Look at Jeremiah 18, verse number 1. The word which came to Jeremiah, the Lord, saying, Arise, go down to the potter's house, and there will I cause thee to hear my words. Then I went down to the potter's house, and behold, he was working a work on the wheel. When Jeremiah arrives, the potter is already at the wheel, kicking the pedal. The wheel is turning. He's got his hands on a piece of clay and he's shaping that piece of clay and it's rising up off that wheel like every piece of clay does as the potter forms it. It rises and spreads and rises and spreads and he's shaping and forming and no doubt it is a beautiful, still unformed, but beautiful vessel until verse four. As Jeremiah watches, the vessel that he made of clay was marred. Now the word marred means to be ruined, to be ruined. It means, another way to say it is to act wickedly when the the clay acted wickedly. Now, a few years ago, Tracy and I took a pottery class and we spent about six weeks in a potter's um, studio and we learned how how to do pottery. Tracy actually learned, I didn't so much, I tried and she did a really good job, but here's what I learned. Clay doesn't always cooperate. And sometimes it, it seems like it's going just right and it's wonderful, and yet it will get, it'll get wonky on you. Anybody's life ever got wonky? It gets wonky and, and it starts, boom, and, and suddenly it's out of balance and, and it just collapses in on itself. You know what it is? It's marred. He says the, the clay, the work, the vessel that God was building was marred. I want you to hear me. Sin ruins lives. Sin mars the image of God within us. Any sin does. An abortion, having one, encouraging one, paying for one, performing one, Assisting in one is a sin. But will you hear me? Look at verse number four. The vessel that was on the wheel was marred. Look at the rest of it. In the hand of the potter. 
that even though it was marred, it was still in the hand of the potter. And as long as God has his hands on your life, marred it may be, there is hope because you're still in the hands of a gracious and almighty God who can make masterpieces out of marred things. And so, the verse goes on to say, so he made it again. If you're glad God makes it again, would you shout amen? Amen. He made it again. He made it again a vessel according to his good pleasure. I want you to know that the cross of Jesus Christ, the blood of Christ shed at Calvary was shed to cover our sins, all of them, including the sin of abortion. And I want you to know that there's grace and forgiveness because God can remake you and he can press out like that potter working with that clay he can press out the pain in your life and he can reshape the wounds in your life and he can craft a new and a beautiful and a useful you for his glory because that's what he does and he does it by his grace For those of you to whom I'm speaking who have had an abortion, let me tell you something that I want you to think of. And it is that that child conceived and a life made in the image of God at conception. That child is in heaven. And you can be with him or her one day through the grace of Jesus Christ. Now let me close by just giving you maybe four things that we can do to help end abortions. Number one, pray. Would you you make it a matter of prayer that we would ask the Spirit of God to sweep across our land and to bring revival and hope to our land? Number two, we can work. And that is to support those that are on the front line. I, I mentioned three pregnancy centers that are with us today. These are frontline ministries that receive every single week uh, women coming into their clinic, into their, in their counseling centers, who in many, many cases are facing an unplanned, in many cases an unwanted pregnancy, and these women are trying to find out what's next and how do I, how do I deal with this difficulty and this situation in my life. Support these ministries. Every single year when we do a baby shower, Churchwide baby shower. These ministries are the ones that receive the things that you give, but there's so much more that we can do, praying for them and supporting them. These ministries use ultrasound technology. When these women come in, they give them an ultrasound so they can see the child and see the heartbeat. Did you know that 90% of the abortion-minded women, women who are planning to have an abortion, when they see an ultrasound of their child, 90-plus percent opt to keep and carry that child? And either raise the child or place it for adoption. Support those ministries. Number three, what can we do? I would say make authentic disciples of the next generation. Invest your prayers and your time and your service and your passion into student ministries and college ministries to make sure that we are training the next generation to love the word of God and to love life. And number four, You can champion the cause of adoption. Every Christian who says, do not abort, ought to say, 
I'm willing to help in some way find an adoption instead of an abortion. And so we can champion the cause of adoption. No matter who you are, no matter what your story, the grace and the mercy of God is available to you. And so I want to invite you to know that by his grace, you are and can be free in him.